Now tonight we get to talk about something uh, a little less glamorous, if you will, Sodom and Gomorrah. So um, we'll see if we can't get, get to it, and, and I'm, we'll uh, start here in chapter 18. I'm thankful for this whole thing. I, I, I love, you know, we've been going through this, and y'all may joke about taking forever, but a chapter at a time, that's a lot of God's word. And if we believe all of God's word is fit for us and true, then it's fine for us to resonate and settle on it every once in a while and just see what it teaches us, right? So moving through this and going through this, it teaches me something every time. And I want to just look at chapters 18 and 19. We, we really covered most of 18 last week and talked about it, but I think 18 and 19 actually go together as one big piece here as we look to the passage. In Abraham, remember, uh, after the birth of Isaac had been promised, he's an old man now at 100 years old, basically. Sarah is 90. God's already changed their name, and he made it clear to them that this child was not going to be born from some other lady. This child was going to come from Sarah herself. So he's made all of that clear. And how did he do this? The Lord himself shows up to Abraham in chapter 18, starting in verse 1. You see that, and the Lord appeared to him. Now, I want to be clear here, and I'm just going to uh, come out. We've already talked about this. When it says this, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heart, in the heat of it, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your, by your servant. Uh, amen. You can preach on that for a while, too. Do not pass me by. Y'all ever heard Fanny Crosby? Okay, we'll talk about that later. I'm, I'm, I need to keep going. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and Sarah said, and said to Sarah, quick, hurry up, make some bread. We talked about all of this last week. What we want to see then is that this one who has come, when it says the Lord has appeared to him, we see a couple things in our passage. One, it helps us in the English. We don't have the Hebrew here, and most of us would struggle with that. There may be one or two, but most of us would struggle with this. So when you come to this, the name that Moses uses as he writes this passage is the name that the Lord gave him in Exodus chapter 3. If you remember, Moses is at the bush that's burning and not consumed. And the Lord appears to him there and he says, Moses asks, who shall I say is sending me? And he tells him, I am who I am, Yahweh, right? The covenant name of God. Moses is writing this in Genesis, and he's looking back, and he uses that name right here to make it clear to the reader and those who were there that the one who is standing before Abraham is God himself. Abraham's reaction even testifies to this. And so the one who is standing before Abraham is God himself. And then we should be reminded that anytime there is a physical appearance of God in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, that physical appearance of God is the second person of the Trinity, a Christophany as we sing, an appearance of the Christ, okay? 
Because y'all remember, Jesus didn't start in a manger in Bethlehem. He is eternal. He has always existed. You remember the scriptures teach us that the Father, God the Father, does not have a body like men. He is spirit, as Jesus says in chapter 4. So anytime a physical appearance. So what I tell you is the one who's going to wrestle with Jacob a little bit later is Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, if you will, uh, to put it more properly. The one who's going to appear in the fire with the four utes. That's a... I'm saying that, y'all get it. But the one who will appear there is Jesus there. The second person of the Trinity will appear there. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? The physical appearance is here. So what we're getting at is here Jesus, the Lord, has appeared before Abraham himself and is going to eat with him. Abraham receives him and treats him as he would treat any stranger because this, by the way, is the very passage that Hebrews 13 is referring to when it says, when you see visitors or strangers coming to you, be careful because they may be angels and you may be unaware, right? And so here we see how the hospitality is seen. What's important about this, as I said, chapter 18 and 19 go together, is you see how these are treated by Abraham over against how they're treated in Sodom. You see the difference between those two treatments. In fact, as many others have pointed out, not me, the parallels of 18 and 19 are quite striking within this context. Abraham sitting by the entrance of his tent, Lot sitting by the gateway of the city. These two start out this way. When he sees them, he hurries toward them. When Lot sees him, he gets up to meet him. Abraham bows low to the ground. Lot bows low to the ground, just running parallel alongside each other in the narrative. Please do not pass your servant by, Abraham says. Lot says, please turn aside to your servant's house. You see where he asks, where is your wife here, Sarah, to Abraham? He asks, where are the men? He asks this. These visitors asked a lot. My point is, these two chapters run parallel side by side in the narrative, which points to us, I think, that they are to go together. We're to look at these two together. The list of that, by the way, can go on and on throughout the chapter. Abraham comes and he treats these visitors with kindness, with hospitality. He does what he's supposed to do. He welcomes them in. He washes their feet. He makes a morsel of bread, which to me sounds like a little tidbit of bread. But then he, remember, he tells Sarah to get two liters of flour and start. And I, and, and I pointed out last week, obviously, they're not gluten-free. So they, they, they run through this and they, they go. So he does, Abraham does exactly what he is to do to show hospitality to them. And then Abraham realizes even more so who this is whenever he is told that this child would be born through Sarah. We talked about them laughing this last time. Abraham laughed last week. Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed and we saw that. Then in verse 16, I believe. Well, let me go ahead and make sure. Verse 16, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. So here you have these travelers coming through. What happens in chapter 18 is the Lord sits and eats a meal with Abraham. Y'all, he has communion with him, in other words. A relationship there. He sits and he eats with him. 
And then they have a conversation. But as they get up, they are leaving to go down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Not only has he shown them hospitality, he is doing what he should do, leading them out. And the Lord, verse 17, you see again, as I said, maybe I didn't say it this week, when our English versions use Lord and capitalize every letter, that's where that covenant name of God is being used in the text of Yahweh. So he says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. In other words, Abraham will be blessed through it. Should I hide to him what I'm about to do? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see. This is the same language, by the way, that the Lord uses in Genesis chapter uh, 11 when he says about Babel. Their sin is growing. Let me go down to see. So the Lord is saying, I'm going down to see. He's condescending himself, if you will, to go see and look upon the sins of the people. I'll go down to see whether they have, what, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So then... Verse 22 gives us the clearest identity of these three visitors, if you will. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood, a posture, standing before the Lord. So Abraham is still here. From this point, the Lord communes with Abraham and has a meal. He communes with him. He talks with him, and then he is going to continue that conversation while the other two head down to Sodom. So the Lord doesn't go to Sodom. He sends his messengers, which is what the word angel mean, right? Angel means he sends his messengers down to Sodom to see. So they go, the Lord stays here. And this next section of, of Genesis 18 is quite beautiful in some ways because you see the progression the Lord comes to Abraham. Hospitality is shown to him. Abraham welcomes him into his house, treats him as a, uh, a special guest. Communion takes place between Abraham and the Lord as they eat together and they join together in this. And then the conversation continues. Because of this, you see the righteousness of Abraham here even. Because of this, the conversation will continue and Abraham will have an audience with the Lord. So here he gets to petition the Lord, if you will. This becomes a beautiful picture in my mind of prayer. Because now Abraham, who, loved, who has treated, welcomed him in in righteousness, done what he should... He has communion with him, and now he gets to talk with him. He has communication with him. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord, as if, by the way, as you'll see, standing before the judge. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham's question is important here. He's 
We have to do. Last night at the South Carolina Baptist Convention, uh, Tony Evans brought the message, and he mentioned this very thing, a passage that we see here uh, at this time. He says that there are two pillars, if you will. He quoted Psalm 89, 14, um, where it talks about that righteousness and justice are the two pillars of the throne of God. And so these two things go together, righteousness and justice. And so here you see what Abraham's question is, is not questioning God's justice and judgment against the wicked. That's not what he's questioning. He's not approaching the Lord to ask if it's, should you judge the wicked? That's not what he does. And that's how we know this is not a negotiation that's about to take place. This is a petition, if you will, an intercession. And there's a difference. There's a difference between negotiating with God the terms of his justice. There's a difference between negotiating God the terms of his righteousness and what he shall do. Abraham is not given the opportunity to tell God what to do. Abraham is given the opportunity to petition God for the sake of the righteous. For the sake of the righteous. He says to him, he says, should you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God is right in his judgment, but what about the righteous there? Now, who is Abraham thinking of? Lot. Abraham's already sought after Lot. He's already whipped some, some generals and took out some nations. You know, he's already done this one time. But what Abraham recognizes is the method he used before is not going to work this time, right? Right? Because the method he used before was to depend upon the power of God to go after those ungodly generals and those ungodly nations. And God took Abraham and his some 300 men and was able to whip five nations because God's power was with him. But now God is not dealing with unrighteous nations. I mean, Abraham's not dealing with unrighteous nations that he's going to in the power of God. Abraham is dealing with God himself. So again, this is not going to be a negotiation. This is going to be Abraham asking, petitioning God, interceding to the Lord on behalf of the righteous. And so he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham's asking the question of the justice of God. Will you not do? You, this is who you are. How are you going to do this? What about the righteous there? And the Lord's response is, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place. In other words, no. God's not going to bring just judgment upon the righteous, right? He's not. He's God. And he's not, he's a fair judge. He's a right judge. So he says, in fact, that righteous, if there's 50 righteous, I won't even judge the wicked. I'll save the place for the righteous sake. So God says, if that's the case, that's what I'll do. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. And I, who am I but dust and ashes? By the way, it's interesting here that that's Abraham's response. Because what happens here is Abraham petitions the Lord. 
Now, I'm going to go ahead and suggest, and, and maybe I'm reading a little bit into it, but Abraham might have been a little bit nervous at this point. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you got the Lord standing before you, and Abraham's going to ask for the sake of the righteous this question, and he might have been waiting on this answer as if, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm not sure how the Lord is going to respond here. And so when the Lord looks at Abraham and says, you have interceded on behalf of the righteous, and I've heard you, and I'll do what is right. I'll always do what is right. That did not lead Abraham to puff out his chest as if he has accomplished something. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? It didn't lead Abraham to say, look, I have petitioned the Lord and he has heard me. I must be important. In fact, it did the opposite. Abraham, it humbled Abraham that the Lord who he stood before, mighty and righteous, who he knew had already fought on his behalf against those generals, this same Lord who he had already heard call him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, this same Lord who's been gracious to him, even when he did stupid stuff, and he'll do stupid stuff again, this same Lord who had always done this, this same Lord who he knew was in control, did not respond in judgment or anger to him but heard his petition and answered. Abraham knew that was fascinating. Before I go any further, I want y'all to think about, I want y'all to think about when the Lord Jesus, because we'll, we're going to come to Jesus tonight. I promise you this is going to get good. But I want you to think about when the Lord Jesus says, here's how I want you to pray. Y'all remember that? The most revolutionary statement I think the Lord has said. When he said, here's how I want you to pray. You who are a sinner, you who are unrighteous, you who do not deserve to have counsel with the Lord Almighty, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you can come to God Almighty, creator of the heavens and earth, and you can call him Father. Think about that for a moment. And that should not puff out our chest as if we have accomplished anything. Because if we know anything about us, we do not have that privilege and right in and of ourselves. What that should do is humble us before him. And what that should also do is make us come back over and over and over and over and over again. Because in the goodness and graciousness of God, the almighty God, he has obligated himself to me and you and said, if you come to me in my son's name, Jesus Christ, who has died for you and shed his blood for you. If you come to me in his name, I will always hear you. Amen. That's incredible. And so Abraham models this for us and humbles himself, recognizing the Lord has heard him and answered him. And it causes him to fall to his face. But you know what it causes him to do? Like that persistent widow who kept banging on the door, Jesus said, Jesus said, by the way, when you pray, pray like this, like the widow who wanted something from her unrighteous landlord. Y'all remember that? And so she wanted it, and the unrighteous landlord put his finger in his ears and didn't want to hear her mess. So she just kept on banging until finally he's like, here, take it and threw it at her. Y'all know what I mean? Lord said, that's how I want you to come to me. 
over and over and over and over again. So here, Abraham not only cries out to the Lord, interceding on behalf of the righteous, he not only cries out to the Lord, the Lord hears him, answers him. Abraham humbles himself, but what does Abraham do? He comes back with another request. He comes back with another request, and he says, okay, 50 may be a stretch. I've seen them people down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him. Okay, 45 is a little stretch. Suppose 40 are found there. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. All right, that might be tough. Okay, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Uh, again, Abraham does not want to over step his bounds or speak too much here. Okay, don't get mad at me. I've done this before, by the way. You know, there's a negotiation process we have with parents growing up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? This kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Suppose there's 50. I won't do it. Okay, there's probably not 50, but 45? Yeah, I'm realizing there's probably not that many. So he keeps going and he says, okay, I don't want to over, overstep my bounds. I don't want to overstep my bounds. 40, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. He said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I'll not do it if I find 30. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. I won't do it for the sake of 20. I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to this place. In this, we see a couple things. One, we see God communing with his people. They're talking. There's modeling what I think is prayer is all about. We see the need for intercession. We see the need for someone to intercede on behalf of others, don't we? We see what Abraham's doing. He's pleading for the sake of others. Abraham's not going to the Lord for his own sake. Abraham's going to the Lord for the sake of others. By the way, in Scripture, over and over again, when prayer becomes modeled for us, like the Apostle Paul in the epistles and everything else, it does not mean you can't pray for yourself. But if all you ever do is pray for yourself, you have a false or a wrong or a dysfunctional understanding of what prayer really is and a dysfunctional understanding of the kingdom of God. That our prayer should be not only for your needs by all means, but let your heart be open to the needs of others. Intercede on behalf of others. Let me tell you this. If you've got a friend, a family member, a coworker, I don't care who it is. If you have one that is far from God, I'm going to encourage you, start off simply by praying for them. Intercede on their behalf. Lord, if it's not me, send somebody to tell them about Christ that they'll hear. If it's me, make me be ready. Lord, save their soul. Do something. But what I'll find is if you've got somebody, it's been really hard for you to address. Maybe it's a family member and you should have brought it up 30 years ago, but you've waited 30 years later and it gets real awkward at this point. You don't know what I'm talking about. Y'all been putting up with this for 30 years. Finally, I've had enough. But maybe it's that. Pray for them by name. And do not be surprised if the Lord does not put an opportunity right before your face to speak to them about the gospel. But pray for them. Intercede on behalf of others. Ultimately, we know 
that we all needed someone to intercede on our behalf, right? We all needed someone to intercede. And here at this point, we are talking about, uh, as Paul tells of Timothy, his mother and his grandmother who did for him and interceded on his behalf. But even more so, we're talking about that great one who has interceded for us, Christ Jesus, on our behalf and come to us and treated us as a brother. So here, Abraham recognizes the need. He recognizes that the Lord's judgment is sure and it is true and it is right against wickedness. But hey, does he have grace? Does he have grace for those that are righteous? And so he pleads here. The Lord even tells him, if it's 10, I won't destroy it. That takes us right into chapter 19. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Don't overlook that statement because it's important. Throughout here, the book of Genesis, really since chapter 13, we've seen kind of this, this look toward Lot. They came back from Egypt, remember, and Abraham settled in the land that God had showed him. Lot looked over toward Sodom and saw that that was a rich and well-to-do land. He saw the plushness and the greenness of the area. He saw what it was and he said, I think that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to choose this. And so he heads over there and it tells us in chapter 13, verse 10, that he looked to Sodom. In chapter 13, verse, verse 12, he pitched his tent. I got to be careful with that. Near Sodom. He did this near Sodom. So he, not only does he look toward it, but he goes and he sets up his life near Sodom close to Sodom. We see that, but not only that, we see chapter 14, what happens? You don't see him dwelling near Sodom. You see him doing what? Living in Sodom. And now when you get to chapter 19, where do we find him? And it's more to it. Maybe we would miss about this, but if you read any commentary here or any simple study Bible, you'll find out that sitting at the gates were where the elders sat of the city. And not only that's where the elders sat of the city, that's where they made judgments and rulings. So now here is, here is Lot who started out looking towards Sodom. Then he started dwelling near Sodom. Then he started living in Sodom. And now he's sitting at the gates, a part of the system, a part of the structure and the culture of Sodom. I don't think I have to go too far here to show you the compromise that is small from the beginning, that gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger till before you know it, you're sitting there full blast in the midst of it. Is this not, by the way, a picture of how the world is and how sin is? Is this not this? There's, there's a simple phrase I use all the time. It's not, not, not familiar to me uh, or not new to me, but it's simply this. Either you are killing sin or sin is killing you. There's no neutral ground in here. And whenever we think about the sins we commit, we need to remember that whenever something blows up in your life or big and some great, some great sin is exposed, that great sin started with a small look. That great sin started with a small little look. And here you see it with Lot clearly. He looked toward Sodom. Before you know it, he is a part of it, in the midst of it, in the culture of it, in the life of it surrounded by it. It's a warning to all of us as we think about this. 
It's a warning to all of us as we consider our own life and where we position ourselves and what do we look toward. Because here, when he does this, he's sitting here in the, in the gates. The two come in. The two angels, as it said. Lot quickly pops up, bowed himself toward them to his face. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. In other words, let's get out of sight of everybody else. Lot knows the problem. Let's come on. Let's go to the house, y'all. Let's get let's get to the house. So they said, "We uh, let me spend the night. Wash your feet that you may rise up early and go on your way." Here you see a little bit of the fact, and we're going to see this a little bit of the fact that maybe there's hope here for Lot how he treats these two, but he recognizes he's in a bad spot because they said, "No, nah, we'll spend the night at the town town square." But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So he pressed them, come to my house, let's get out of here. But Lot recognizes that this just wasn't for him to be hospitable. He's trying to do what? Protect them. Why? Because the people of this city were not very nice or friendly. And so he says... But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 16, just quickly. Y'all know where to find Ezekiel. Again, y'all need to be reading these books of the Bible. You get to heaven and y'all meet Ezekiel. You want to be able to say, man, that's a great book. <laughs> Last thing you want to do is be like, ah, I didn't get that one. How'd you like my book? Oh, man. Y'all need to read it. Go meet him one day. In Ezekiel chapter 16... Here, the Lord is calling out to his unfaithful people. And he says, you have been worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says in verse 49, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. You see how the Lord did that? Your sister Sodom. You act, that's your family when you act unrighteously. So he says, this has been worse. And uh, she and her daughters had pride. Sodom's sin was what? Pride, excess of food. They were living abundantly. They had everything they could possibly need or want. They had excess of food and prosperous ease. Y'all hear that? That was the sin of Sodom ultimately, wasn't it? Pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So understand here, the sins that's committed in chapter 19 are not the base level sins of Sodom. The sin of Sodom didn't start out with homosexuality. By the way, I'm Pointing that out there because most of this is clear. Some people try to get around this. But here, the euphemism that we have learned already, that we may know them, is, I believe, clearly euphemism of a sexual act. So here's the men 
saying to the other, these two, bring them out so we could sexually assault them, basically. Bring us them here. That's not the necessary. Here, here we are, I'll say this. That's not necessarily the sin that has caused the destruction of God upon them. It's evidence of just how wicked they have become because of their pride, arrogance, excess, and their trust in the things of this world. Does that make sense to everybody? In fact, Romans 1 makes this clear. Because you have rejected God, because the evidence of God has been clear, yet you have suppressed the truth with your unrighteousness, God has taken his hand off of you, in other words. Tony Evans, last night, God's passive wrath. He's taken his hand off of you and given you over to the debaseness of this world so that you even trade what is natural for what is unnatural. You have gone to trusting yourself. You've gone to trusting in your own, which is pride, right? You've gone to trusting in yourself. You've gone to trusting in your goods. You've gone to trusting in all your stuff that you have, that you have flipped over the very nature of creation itself, acting as if you know better than God and traded what is natural for what is unnatural, even men with men and women with women. The height of an epitome of a nation or a culture that does this only is demonstrating their lack of understanding of the creator and what they have done, what he has done for them. And they have removed themselves from the law of God and his authority so as to become our own law for themselves. This act only demonstrates that they had rejected God completely. And because of that, they were unrighteous. They were unrighteous. And so the Lord sees in this act just the wickedness of them. And you read the rest of the story. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. And I'm sitting there going, what is Lot thinking right now? I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. Lot's saying he knows who these men are. He knows what's about to happen. And he's doing everything he can to save it. But notice, Lot has so entangled himself in Sodom. He's so entangled himself with this system. He's so entangled himself with this place. He's trying to save face in Sodom and save face with God at the same time. And what can you not do? You cannot please the world and please God at the same time. Love of the world is enmity with God, the Apostle John says in John 1, 1 John 2, 15. To love the world is enmity with God. And Lot's trying to please Sodom and those people because he sits at the gates. He might need to earn some votes, in other words. And at the same time he's trying to please God, he can't turn these men over. Lot so entangled himself with them that it's going to cost him his two daughters. By the way, that's what the world does, right? It makes promises. It puts you in high places. It gives you status and position, but it always takes more than it ever gives. And because of his choices, now he's in a position to try to save face with God and the world, and he cannot do it. It's impossible. He tries to offer his daughters. They pressed hard against him. Oh, they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. 
Now we'll deal worse with you than them. Lot tries to please them. And what do they do? They turn on him. The world will turn on you. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door. By the way, I want to just go ahead. Lot should have just punched him in the face. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Let's say it straight up. Let's go. Let's fight. He didn't. Just that was my adding. I would be in the study Bible that I write. <laughs> Y'all wait on that. <clears throat> they pressed hard against him, drew near to break the door down, but the men reached out with their hands, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They saved Lot. They, stuck, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Y'all understand the picture. Like zombies, dead men out there groping for the door, trying to find it, desperate to fulfill their appetites that only the world can satisfy, right? Paul says, the problem with you guys is your God is your stomach. Paul not necessarily just saying, although he's talking about food rights, he's not just saying, he's not just saying that your God is food. What he's saying is your appetites rule you. Your worldly appetites are in charge over you. And that's what you see here in Sodom. They have become so wicked that their appetites were ruling them. They were looking to fulfill this wickedness in any way they possibly could. And Lot should have punched him in the mouth because he just saw that the angels had the power to strike them blind if they wanted to, right? He's got some power on his side, but Lot didn't. He tried to compromise. He tried to save it, only made himself worse off. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city. Bring them out of this place. For almost about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. The angel says, all right, Lot, it's time. The Lord will save the righteous, right? So what we see here is maybe even Lot who received them and welcomed them and understood it, but yet has so entangled himself with Sodom that he has worked into this spot. Yet God is gracious to Lot, right? God is kind and gracious to Lot. He says, okay, here's the deal. You go get your daughters, your wife, your kids, whatever, sons-in-law who's going to marry, go get them and let's go. We're getting out. So Lot goes and he says, y'all, it's on. It's about to happen. Let's do it. Look at what Lot's sons-in-laws do. But he seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. I find that to be interesting because isn't it the case that the world believes that they can do what they want to when they want to and they laugh at the idea that there is a God who's in control. And not only do they laugh at the idea that there's a God who's in control, they laugh at the idea that that God can do anything to them. He has no power to do it. You're joking, man. Ain't nobody going to destroy this city. Why? Because y'all hadn't seen it yet, you know? You hadn't witnessed it? God's law is sure. His judgment is true. Let's go. And they laugh at it in his face. New Testament, Jesus says there'll be plenty who are saying peace, peace, and there is no peace. And I would say in our own world, in our own society, we hear that more than anything else. Peace, peace, and there is no peace. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, oh, take up your wife, your two daughters who are here. 
lest you be swept away into punishment. Already warned them once. He's warning them twice. Golly, look at what it says, verse 16. But he lingered. In stark contrast to Abraham, who every time the Lord told him to do something, what did it say? Abraham did it. Immediate response. But here's Lot, caught up in the world. The Lord giving him warning after warning. Still he lingers. At this point, the angels could have simply said, all right, you own your own. See how that works for you. But again, we see the absolute mercy and grace of God. Because look at what it says next. He lingered, so the men did what? Seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Before y'all look at Lot and go, ha ha, you dog, you should have known this Lot. He told you about it twice. Don't you forget about yourself in your own life. And how many times did you hear the warnings of God and the promises of the gospel, yet you lingered, right? But God in his grace did not leave you lingering. If you're a child of God here tonight who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted in him for salvation, you may have lingered for some time, but the Lord God seized you with his goodness, didn't he? The Lord God seized you with his grace. The Lord God opened your eyes so that you can see the glory of Christ. And you know what your response was? The same as Lazarus when he heard Lazarus get up. You saw how good he was. You heard how mighty he is. You saw his goodness and his grace and you got up and you went, didn't you? If you trusted in Christ, that's your testimony. Not not that you said, you know what, I weighed all my options. I get people to say that. All the time. I'm weighing out my options right now. Well, keep weighing if you want to. You keep lingering and rain of fire is coming down. As John the Baptist said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. In other words, the judgment has already been made. It's just coming the moment that the master chops it down. That's all that happens next. So don't linger with this. But even in your lingering, God has not left you. He seized you, saved you, and redeemed you. And here he demonstrates that with Lot. He seizes Lot. He grabs his wife. He grabs his daughters. And he says, let's go. And he took them out of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me a great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved." And so he escapes to this little city called Zor, which means little. In other words, you see what happens a lot. He had the wealth and he had the glory of Sodom, who they had everything they could want for. He had all the possessions he could desire. They didn't lack for food. Their grocery stores were full. They had all kind of stuff. It was plush. It was nice. And he ends up where? In the little city with nothing. You see, again... The world makes great promises to us. But we end up, when we trust in the world, in the little places with nothing left. And so here he begs them, let me go there. Behold, I grant you this favor, and I will not overthrow the city 
of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can, go, I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew out on the ground. By the way, by all means, we understand the judgment of God. By all means, we see the great sin of Sodom and homosexuality and the wickedness that follows with it. But there should be none of us rejoicing in the burning of the city, right? This judgment of God. Oh, it should bring us to worship. In fact, in Revelation, it says that they smell the burning out of hell and they worship God. Why? Because his, just, his justice is on display. And they worship God for his true and right justice. They got what they deserved, in other words. But what a sad scene. What a sad scene. In the midst of this, he overthrew those. Verse 26. They had been warned, don't turn around and look. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. Why did she look back? She longed for it. She loved it. It's what she desired. It's what she wanted. That's where her heart was. That's where her treasure was. That's where her nice furniture was, right? The house she remodeled. The stuff she had done. That's where all that was. And that's where her life was. And, and that's what she wanted. And even though that life was going to send her to judgment, she still desired it and wanted it. That's where her heart was. Don't turn back or you'll be like them. And she still wanted it and desired it. She turned back and she became a pillar of salt. I find it just fascinating uh, how the Lord Jesus refers back so many times in just quick statements to the Old Testament. Again, listen here, believer, Christian, child of God, we love God's word, but we as his people must be students of the entire word of God. Because you don't understand what's happening here unless you realize, or you don't understand what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 17 unless you know this story. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is referring here. He's talking here about the coming of the kingdom of God. And there's going to be two cities, if you will. God's city and the city of the world. Uh, the church father, Augustine, talked about this with the city of God in his famous book where he compares the city of God versus the city of this world. There's two cities. And the question becomes, which city do you live in? And so Jesus comes and he announced the coming of his kingdom, the coming of what he has. And when he does, he starts talking about judgment. And he says they were uh, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Y'all get that? Y'all hear what he said? That's Jesus talking. 
The same judgment that happened on Sodom and Gomorrah is happening again when Jesus comes back. He says when he's revealed on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Why? You don't need those goods where you're going. The worldly things may bring you pressure for a moment and we praise God for what he gives us in this life and his good grace to us, but we recognize those are only God's gifts that are temporary, temporal, and we don't need them. So don't turn back to go get your goods in the house. Don't turn back to go get the things of this world when the Lord comes down. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Verse 32 of Luke 17, three words. Remember Lot's wife? Yes, he leaves it there. And he just simply says, don't look to the things of this world to bring you any pleasure. You need to know that there is nothing that God has created that will bring you more pleasure than himself. There's nothing that he has made that will bring you more pleasure than him. And when he returns for us, what do we get? All of those things in this world that brought us this momentary little satisfaction, but Rolf, uh, Rolf, moth and rust destroy those things, as the scripture says. Now we get the real thing. Christ Jesus, eternal, immortal. We get the real one where moth and rust will not destroy the inheritance that is waiting for us. So leave behind that, the Lord says, and leave it behind in such a way that you think, I don't even need that stuff. I've got something greater. Don't turn back. You ever sung that song before? No turning back. No turning back. Don't think that this world can offer you anything that is better than Christ. And in our passage, we've seen Christ throughout this whole thing, haven't we? In our passage, we've seen Christ throughout this whole, just as Jesus says, we saw him coming down with Abraham and communing with him. We saw him there with Abraham having a conversation, a picture of prayer, if you will, of intercession. We saw him doing all of these things, but we also see the Lord Jesus working himself in Genesis chapter 19 as he sends his messengers and by his grace, even Lot admits by his mercy, he pulls him out. He jerks him out of the city and saves his life. He sees them, as it says. And what we need to know is all of this wrath that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not the last time in Scripture we've seen something like that. In fact, the Old Testament, we'll see something of that nature again. But that's not the last time we've seen it. The last time we saw something of this magnitude was on the cross of Christ itself. Because as I've told y'all before, we look at the Old Testament and many people make an erroneous statement. A statement that I don't want to hear any of you say because I have your pastor, I may have to, well, I won't say that. <laughs> but they say something like this. Well, that's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. That is heresy, by the way. For the same God of the Old Testament is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. And what we need to know is what they mean by that is. The God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment, and we see him do things, mean stuff, like what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. But did we not just read that those in Sodom deserved such judgment? 
The God of the New Testament doesn't do that. He's a God of love. Yes, but his love demanded justice. The attributes of God are all equal in their perfection. So we do not elevate love over against any other attribute. They're all equal in their perfection. And just as much as God is love, he's a God of justice. And in the New Testament, God does something far more amazing than we can ever possibly know. He takes his entire wrath, more than he poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes all of his wrath and he pours it out on the one who is not guilty, the one who is righteous and true. And he takes all of his wrath and puts it on Christ himself. And Christ Jesus on the cross, he becomes a sinner. He who knew no sin did what? Became sin. There he becomes one of pride. He becomes one of arrogance. He becomes one who is trusting in the things of this world, not the things of God. He becomes one who is wicked. There on the cross, Jesus takes all of our sin and God, the righteous judge, pours all of his wrath out on him. And why does that work? Because Jesus himself is fully God and fully man, incarnate with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And our judgment, because it is against a holy and righteous God, eternal God, demands a holy and righteous eternal punishment, right? And the only one who can do that in a span of three hours on a Friday is a holy and righteous eternal God. And he pours it out on him. God's justice is not forgotten in the New Testament. I would even say it's ratcheted up a greater notch because the entirety of it, as Scripture says, is poured out on Christ. And on Christ there, he takes it. He takes it for our behalf. The anointed one, the Messiah, the one who has come for us, takes it for his people. This next week, I'll be preaching from Isaiah 42. Incredible passage of God's kindness to us and his chosen one who has come so that we can sing a whole new song to the Lord. And then next week on the 21st, I'll be preaching from Isaiah 53. Hold on tight, because that's like a six-hour sermon. <laughs> In 30 minutes, I promise. And what we see in God's word all throughout Genesis 18 and 19 is God will be just and he will punish sin. He is not joking. He's serious. And do not love the things of this world, but turn to him. And don't turn back because the things of this world cannot even come close to giving you what he has given you in Christ. God will bring justice, but he is also a God of mercy. And even when we linger by his grace, he seizes us. Amen? Even when we linger, he pulls us out. So don't find yourself looking towards Sodom. Don't find yourself setting up shop towards Sodom. Don't find yourself living in Sodom. Don't find yourself sitting at the gates of Sodom. Recognize that the things of this world are passing away. But the things of God are eternal. And the things of God have come to us most clearly and beautifully in the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who is looking to commune with us, talk with us, hear us. What a good gift Christ is. God has created nothing that will bring you more pleasure than himself.
And he will, hear me when I say this, he will give you nothing that will bring him more pleasure than himself. And he freely gives himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ Jesus. God, help us to recognize the seriousness of sin and not laugh at it. Help us to recognize the judgment that comes because of it is grave and dangerous for us all. May we not laugh at that. God, help us to see the grace and mercy that you have bestowed upon us in seizing us with the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Saving us from our sin and pulling us out of it and putting us in a safe place, which is in our Savior. And so, God, may we praise you for your kindness and your goodness. May we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who has saved us from the wrath of God by drinking that entire cup himself, every last drop, so there's none left for us. Thank you for Christ Jesus. And God, if there's anybody here tonight who still laughs at the judgment of God, may you clearly show them even now the grace of Jesus Christ before that judgment becomes real in their life. Thank you, Father, for your kindness in these things. Be with us all for your glory and for your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. Hopefully we'll see you all Sunday.